Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. The sponsor for this whole Labor Day Book Blast week is firstbook.org. Obviously, the pandemic is crippling education for millions of students, especially those in low-income communities. The widening digital divide and extended quote-unquote summer slide due to COVID is devastating. Apparently, 40% lack access to reliable internet and functioning digital devices they can use for online learning, making the need for physical books and resources to prevent further educational backsliding absolutely critical. Firstbook breaks down the barriers to education for children living in low-income communities by providing its network of more than 475,000 educators serving children in need with free and affordable new high-quality books, educational resources, and basic needs items through the award-winning First Book Marketplace nonprofit e-commerce site. They need your support to ensure these children have what they need to learn during this critical time. Visit firstbook.org to help Michelle Harper is the author of The Beauty in Breaking, which was an instant New York Times bestseller, and I can totally see why. It's such a good memoir. Michelle has worked as an emergency room physician for more than a decade at various institutions, including as chief resident at Lincoln Hospital in the South Bronx and is in the emergency department at the Veterans Affair Medical Center in Philadelphia. She's a graduate of Harvard University and the Renaissance School of Medicine at Stony Brook University. The Beauty in Breaking is her first book. Listen to us talk and And you'll see why I threatened to stalk her because I'm like so obsessed with her writing. Welcome, Michelle. Thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I am so excited to discuss this beautiful memoir, which was so good. And oh my gosh, I just loved it. As soon as I started reading it, I was like emailing your publicist, like, I have to talk to her. (laughs) So anyway, it's so well written and so great. So. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. <laughs> Would you mind telling listeners who don't know what The Beauty and Breaking is about, what your memoir is really about, and also what made you write a memoir? Right. Well, so it is a memoir, and it's, it's about me and difficulties I overcame growing up in an abusive household with a batterer as a father. And so it's my journey to healing, but it's also interwoven between patient stories and each chapter is one or two patients' names, and it explores their own journey to healing in their lives. And so the reason I wrote this was because for me, I resonate more with the healing process and being a healer more than any specific title. So more than being a doctor specifically. You know, I find that in the ER, I can help potentially one patient at a time, one family at a time, maybe one community at a time. But with writing, so much more. I mean, people throughout the state, the country, the world. And so that appealed to me. And I thought, well, this is another way for me to use a different platform to demonstrate our interconnectedness as human beings and support healing for people in other locations. It's amazing. Well, I'm really glad you did. (laughs) I just wanted to start by reading this beautiful quote, which sort of explains 
the naming of your book, you wrote, from childhood to now, I have been broken many times. I suspect most people have. In practicing the Japanese art of kintsu kuroi, one repairs broken pottery by filling in the cracks with gold, silver, or platinum. The choice to highlight the breaks with precious metals not only acknowledges them, but also pays tribute to the vessel that has been torn apart by the mutability of life. The previously broken object is considered more beautiful for its imperfections. In life, too, even greater brilliance can be found after the mending. I loved that. Yeah. Uh, so I'm assuming this is this whole theory is how you named your book. And yes. Tell me about how this theory has played out in your life. Right. It's true. That's how I named the book, and it resonates with me in life in general. Because I feel that part of the deal of being human is that there will be challenges. There just will in life. And so then the question is not will something painful happen or something that feels untear, something that could wrench us apart, but how we meet that moment and how we come through it and how we are on the other side of it. And I believe that in coming through it, we can be stronger, more resilient. And then for me, of course, the most important thing is then we can contribute in a more powerful, meaningful way to life in general and help other people. Which is, of course, like the most powerful thing you can do as a human being anyway, right? I mean, (laughs) (laughs) perfect. So one of the things you did in this book that was so interesting, which you just mentioned, is how you weave in all the different stories. So You'll go from like yoga class to gunshot wounds to, I mean, I'm like, we're like all over the place here. You're like, you know, (laughs) sitting on the couch and then, you know, like trying to get a tube down a baby's throat. I'm like, where are we here? What chapter am I on? (laughs) Like how much do I have to be like sitting forward on the edge of my seat or can I relax in one of your chapters where you're like doing your busy work at home? But anyway, one of the things you mentioned is that when you're waiting for a patient to come in to the ER, oftentimes you'll hear a story first and you don't want to get wrapped up in the story. You said the luxury of just being in the moment of doing our job without getting tangled up in the story of the job is a luxury really, but most of the time you hear what it is ahead of time. Tell me a little bit about this and knowing what it does when you know, when you hear it, when the, you know, the EMS team calls and says that such and such is on the way, how you prepare yourself for things like that, because I feel like it's sort of, you know, encapsulates things in life, right? It's like, Uh, it's all like a metaphor. This whole book, I feel like is a metaphor for everything bigger. (laughs) So tell me about that, please. It's true. I mean, if, if there's a potentially critical patient coming in, we'll get a notification often. And so they might say, okay, baby with a seizure coming in, unresponsive, might need intubation, something along those lines. So We'll get the rooms ready, and if I'm the provider on who's going to get the case, I'll, I'll try and tidy up my other work so I can drop everything and go to this patient. I mean, the benefit is that we may be able to prepare. The downside is it can bias us, and maybe that's not at all what's coming in. It, it might not be an infant. It could be a trauma and not just a medical case. So in some ways, it can lead us from being really prepared to take care of the patient because we might not consider aspects of the case that happen. So you're right. That applies not only in the ER, but in life in general. And to maintain an open mind, for me, to maintain an open mind and not get carried away with my biases that could influence my work. Uh, You know, I speak about such a case, various examples, but one in particular a patient came in and it said he had a hemorrhoid 
and he was fine and he was stable and I reviewed the vital signs, but then an alert came up on the board when I was reviewing the, the electronic record that he had been violent in the past and he had assaulted a female physician who was taking care of him, sexually assaulted her. And of course that made my blood boil that in the act of this woman taking care of him, trying to save him from an infection that could have been life-threatening, that he chose to assault her in that moment. And then, of course, my blood was boiling too because it was described in this just casual way. You know, she put down her knife and walked away and then a man finished the procedure. So when I read his record, he was stable according to everything documented by the nurse. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to make coffee. He can wait for me to make coffee. (laughs) And I'll stir in the sugar grain by grain and enjoy this terrible coffee that was sitting in the air for probably eight hours. And I came back, maybe it was just a couple minutes later, but I felt that, well, he was fine to wait, but other patients might come in and they shouldn't wait. And when I saw the patient and examined him, I realized he wasn't coming in with a hemorrhoid at all and actually had an incarcerated hernia. It's a technical term, but a surgical emergency. He needed to go to the operating room. And I told that case because he is not a sympathetic character and what he did was awful. But also, it wasn't relevant to the moment of me seeing him. And while he needed to be held accountable and while the hospital needed to be held accountable also to take care of their staff and not enable abuse of their staff, my job in that moment, because I really didn't know him or what had happened, was to deliver the best care possible. And so I wanted to show how It was important for me to hold myself accountable in that way as well. Now, he did fine. I took care of him. Interestingly enough, the two surgeons who were on were also women and took care of him. And I thought, like, did he think about that? I don't know if he had grown since then. I don't know if he was in therapy. I don't know if anything had changed the course of his life or understanding But I wondered if he thought about that. I wondered if somehow that changed him. And I knew that the only way that he or I or any of us would grow is if we were open and sensitive to the understanding in that moment, if I could have compassion for him and if he could have compassion enough for himself, then we could all be better for it. Wow. You also talk about in the book, this ethics case essentially that comes in when you had a, you had a bunch of like white policemen Mm. bring in a black man and they were trying against his will to get him to get all his, they thought he had swallowed drugs and it was a whole big mess. And so instead of insisting on the medical exam per the police, you, in your like badass way that you (laughs) have, as I can tell from this book, just went in and you calmly you like looked him in the eye and you asked him some questions and then you told everybody like, no, 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 this is not, we cannot do this. You can't force somebody to do something against your will. Tell me a little more about that moment and what it's like to just have even the person that you train sort of questioning Mm -hmm. you and all this sort of systemic stuff that get mixed in with medical care. Right. Yeah. Constantly. Yes. The police wanted me to force this exam on him, which is unprofessional, unethical, and illegal because he was competent. I mean, I don't know if he swallowed drugs or not. It also didn't matter because he was competent and sober and didn't want to be examined. So the right thing to do was to discharge him from the emergency department, which I did. Now, meanwhile, the person I was training, the resident had called, you know, what she deemed a higher authority hospital ethics and legal department to see if she could go around me to get this done anyway. And the hospital said, no, you actually can't because she's right. 
And if you do that, it would be illegal and that would be bad for everyone. So she said, okay, yeah, they said you're right. And then she just went on with her business. And what was very important for me in telling that was to show how, yes, you know, as, as we're seeing now with the protests and movements for justice, that there are definitely issues with systemic racism in the police department. And so we also have them in our own house, in the House of Medicine, and demonstrating how we've been complicit and how we can, and how, yes, it takes tremendous acts of courage to stand up against these institutions, but it can be done. And in that one case, it was effective, and how we have to continue these movements if we want progress to happen. And that was just one story. You're right. It happens all the time, and it is exhausting. My hope is that in telling these stories, it will empower other people to act as well. And you also illustrated how you were passed over for promotion that you completely Mm -hmm. deserved. And the hospital, not only did they not promote you to the job that you deserved, they left it open. The position left, which is like the worst ever. Oh, it gets worse. Oh, it gets worse than that. Okay, go on. Tell me. (laughs) So, yeah, I was the only one to apply for that position. And my, my boss had called me and it was an administrative position in the hospital. And he said, you know, I'm so sorry. You were super qualified. And he told me point blank, this hospital just never promotes women or people of color. And so they always leave. And I hope you'll stay on with us. I hope you'll stay anyway. I, I, I did leave. And you're right. I was the only applicant. They left it open. And I found out shortly after my leaving, they did hire someone for it. And it was a white male nurse. So, uh-huh. yeah. so like, what do you do with all that? Like, what do you do with all of, like, how do you process that? feeling. Like I would be so pissed off. I mean, I don't know. How do you just like hand in your resignation and just like start a job somewhere else without that lingering, you know? So it it lingers in the way that I don't forget clearly because I put it in the book. (laughs) (laughs) It lingers and we're talking about it today. Exactly. (laughs) But I process it because the only option for me is to move forward. And then I think about, you know, the how to navigate these structural issues that we talked about, the structural sexism and racism, you know, the list goes on. I mean, homophobia and rights for people who have different levels of physical ability. So how does one process that? Well, the only option for me is to keep moving forward. And the way I tackle the system will will vary depending on the circumstance. In that one instance, for example, with the job, I decided it was best for me to just leave. They had already had a lawsuit. I mean, it clearly didn't really change much. And so one picks her battles. And so in this case, I figured I would leave, but my work would continue fighting for equality and justice. And part of that is speaking openly, shedding light on these issues, which can take tremendous risk. That's come up in interviews before, like, how are you doing this? What if there's backlash? It's true, there can be backlash, but there's a place now for truth tellers. And it's, it's now and this time it's more important than ever. You know, I started writing this book years ago. <laughs> if I had to estimate maybe six years ago, I had no idea it would come out during a pandemic, you know, after the Me Too movement had started during Black Lives Matter. I had no idea. So the personal risk I was anticipating was even greater. Mm-hmm. Now, as it happens, this is the time it comes out, which has created a softer landing. And I'm actually grateful because there's, there's more of a space. People are a little more open to talk about it now and to act. Tell me about the six years of writing this book. 
<laughs> Tell me about the moment when you said, you know what, I'm going to try this and I'm going to sit down and like you opened up your computer or whatever. Like, what was that like? So I, and, and these had been, these stories had been percolating since residency. And it started where, you know, I would, I would see patients and their experiences would just stay with me. And, and this is back in residency. So this is, gosh, over like 15 years ago, 14 years ago. Anyway, I'm dating myself. So, and, and they would just stay. And I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I know that I had to process them, tell them and amplify these voices. And so around six years ago, I said, okay, now it's time. I want to start writing. And since I work shifts, I couldn't make classes. I really wanted to enroll in literature class and I figured I'd work on my writing that way, but I couldn't. So I found someone who could do some private instruction with writing. And I said, you know what, if I'm going to pay for this and we're going to meet weekly, I might as well just start worrying. Not initially, like this couple weeks in, I said, well, I should just start working on my book and that'll be my personal project to write my book. And so that's how it began. And I just figured it out as I went along. I'd, so once I was done, I said, well, now I have a book. I guess I should try and do something with it. <laughs> and like met with a literary consultant because I had no idea who advised, yeah, I think it's good enough. You should try and get it traditionally published. And then I was rejected by agents for God, maybe a year and a half. And I was, of course, it always happens this way. I was about to give up. And then my current agent took the book and believed. And I'm so grateful that she believed. And then with like within a month, it sold at auction. And then I edited for like another year and then waited around eight months. And now we have a book. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was the process. What a journey. Oh my gosh. I had no idea. And this is lifetimes. Like as an ER doctor, years and years, I'm like, you know, I can save a life in, in three hours. This book took Six years. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for the faint of heart to write on a book and get it published. It's, yeah, it's, it's right. quite a Well, I mean, that just goes to show, like, you just can't give up. I mean, right. I'm so glad you didn't. I bet those first slew of agents are just kicking themselves right now. It's interesting. And, and you're right. And another story I really like to tell is one of, most of the times the rejection came in the form of silence. And every once in a while, someone was not, I mean, so some of the agents were so kind and they would write and they'd say, you know, this is a really great project. It's just not what I do. So someone else should represent this who can do it justice. But then one woman, and I wish I had kept the email. I was going through a difficult period in my life at point, And then I thought the book also wouldn't work. And so I didn't think to keep her email. But I remember I was walking down the street and I heard from one agent who, in California, who I, I figured I would never hear from her again because I think I wrote her maybe six months before and I get an email on my phone and I'm walking down the street because I was clearing my head and I like to take walking meditation walks. And I opened it up and I was kind of excited because it started as, I'm so sorry, I meant to get back to you sooner. And then she continued to say, but I wanted to make sure to write you to just let you know that we already have doctors writing. And she proceeded to name like three men. I had never heard of one of them and vaguely the other. And none of them from underrepresented groups of color. And she's like, we already have these doctors writing, so we don't need your book. I just wanted to let you know that. <laughs> and that was the email. And I was furious that this woman went out of her way and took her time 
to tell me to stop what I'm doing because my voice is not needed. And I remember thinking, this is just fuel. Oh, I'm going to get it done. And she's going to hear about this book. (laughs) So at this point, I'm sure she has. And it's a sweet moment. (laughs) You have to like wrap up a coffee and like FedEx it to her door and be like, well, here here it is, you know. (laughs) I'm terrible. That makes me sound like spiteful and awful. You shouldn't do that. We should just joke joke about doing it, but don't actually do it. (laughs) I won't do it. And hopefully she does remember and thinks twice before she tries to kill someone else's dream. That, you know, I mean, that's, that's also the, the challenge with almost like not taking things personally in this literary craziness, because they could just say like, okay, medical books, check. And then they're not right. like, oh, this, this interesting new voice. It's like, oh, that right. bucket's filled. Now we need like a rock star. Now we need, you know, a, an addiction novel. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, right. But yeah, it's a challenge. Um, <laughs> let's talk about divorce for a minute, if you don't mind. Sure. Divorce, yeah, yeah. You know, always happy to talk about people who have gotten through divorce. Your parents got divorced. Mm-hmm. My parents got divorced. Everybody's getting, let's all get divorced. Oh, I know. <laughs> but you wrote really beautifully about sort of the future that wasn't, which is something uh-huh. that I think so many of us sort of have to grapple with that you, you see your life and not just with divorce, honestly, but you just see right. your life going in a certain way and you, with all of the things that that comes with. And then all of a sudden you come to a screeching halt and that le- not just what's going on now stops, but all the things that were to follow also stop. So just talk mm-hmm. to me a little about that and how that sort of pervaded your life for a while and, and how you got over it or I don't know, any of it. Right, right. Yeah, the divorce. And so we, we were together. Oh, this is funny. We met at the Freshman Ice Cream Mixer. That's what it was called in college. <laughs> so we had a lot. Essentially, we were together. We grew up together, really. And then before graduation from residency, I found out that the marriage was going to end. He said he couldn't be with me anymore, that I was on my life path and seemed that I would be successful. I was graduating from residency. He was going to be a doctor. And his road was more challenging. He was interested in documentary film and pursuing the arts, which is a more difficult road. It's not linear. And he said, since I was doing well and he wasn't, he couldn't handle it. So we'd have to go our separate ways. And so in that moment, when he said that, you know, I feel that everyone can make their own decisions. I don't take hostages. So if he couldn't be with me, then he couldn't. And I I knew it was over and I wish him the best. (laughs) And it was painful. And I also knew that it was triggering something much more painful than had to do with him at all. And, and I, I needed time to process that. But what I really was grieving was this loss of a story I had for our future. You know, I thought we would continue together. We would have kids. I mean, I was I focused on my career, finishing my career. So kids would happen later. I just took it for granted. And we were going to be this fantastic, chic couple I was this doctor, he's a documentary film artist, and we're going to have the coolest kids and the greatest life. (laughs) And that's what I was grieving. But even deeper than that, being a person who grew up in a dysfunctional home where there was so much pain and suffering and trauma and violence, including physical violence, that was the relationship with my ex-husband was the healthiest relationship I had with a man. And so I wanted a healthy family. I wanted to bring that to the world. So I grieved that more than any of it. And it was the moment that I understood that, that I could heal from it. 
And so, yes, I let, I let my ex-husband go and, and quite peacefully so. And I believe that I allowed myself to open up, you know, as Joseph Campbell, I don't know if he was the only one to say it, but I let go of the life that I had and this idea of a life that didn't even exist to let myself open up to the life that was waiting for me. And I didn't know what it was, but I knew that the only way for me to live with integrity was to be willing to accept what was happening and what was yet to come. And that was a really important story for me to talk about because what I found in my own life and dealing with working with patients and family members and friends is that we get so imprisoned by these stories in our mind and so much liberation comes from just letting them go and letting them be and, and living. That was awesome. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) So what's like the two second, like since the book ended, what's happened with you? Cause now I want like the update. (laughs) Now I'm like invested. I'm like going to stalk you. No, I'm kidding. I feel like after you go through someone's whole life for a while, you want to like get you like the PS. So what's happened since and what's coming next and like, what's the rest for you? I don't know. Okay. So (laughs) I don't know. Okay. So what's happened since is honestly, I worked, it it, it was kind of a while to get the book out and I worked on it tirelessly. And so now the book is out and now it's been a whirlwind. I mean, literally I work my shifts when I'm not doing shifts that I'm speaking to fun, interesting, cool people like you. And it's, it's actually a a last, but it's so far it's been like every day I'm off and then I schedule time when I can eat dinner or maybe clean or something. And so that's really how it's been. And thinking about what's next on this literary path and some interesting conversations around film and TV. The moment I have time to consider it, I do want to think about future writing. I mean, I have an essay that should be coming out. I'm super excited about soon, but books also I want to think about. So, so, so it's really interesting because, well, I'm not going to say how I end the memoir for whoever hasn't read it, but, but I do speak about what we've already talked about, how an important part for me in my spiritual path and life path is becoming comfortable with uncertainty and just not knowing. So the true answer is, I don't know what's happening next. I have all these ideas about potential projects and now I have to see which seeds take root first. And it's fascinating for me because on my medical path, it was really easy. Like you do steps X, Y, Z. It takes you in this direction. If you want to go a different direction, you follow this path. This is different. I have no idea. Again, this is not linear. So it's exciting and we'll see. And I I know it'll be interesting. That's actually the only thing I know. All right, so I'll just keep stalking you. We'll just, yeah. you know, you'll have to like open your blinds one day. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, right now I'm in a high rise. It'll be a little okay. challenging. But. <laughs> okay. Like Spider-Man. No, I'll just follow you on Instagram. I'll, then I'll leave you <laughs> Do you have any advice to aspiring authors? Yes. And that is the tenacity. That is just to write about what moves you. Like write the story that has to be told. Write the story that is calling you and then have bravery in doing it. You know, one thing that I, it's probably cliche, but one thing that I experienced was there were moments, I I worked with tremendous editors and I love, 
I love my editor, the publisher. He's so wonderful. But even in working with him or my literary whisperer, there were times, I don't know, maybe 20% of the time when I said, nope, this is the way this part of the story has to be told. I can't, I can't give up this part of the story. This is the part I love. It's true to me. And 80% of what you said is completely correct. And I am a better human for it. This is a better book for it. But this 20%'s got to stay. And it always worked out well that way. And I feel like we both won when we did that. So I would say, know what is true for you, stick by it, and just keep going and don't give up because there are people who will try and tell you your voice isn't needed. But I'm here to tell you, like, especially women, people of color, other people who are traditionally silenced, we specifically need your voices. So please keep going. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michelle or Dr. Harper. Thank you. you. It's wonderful hanging out with you. You too. Yeah. (laughs) I'll be on the couch. (laughs) Thank you. Oh my God. I'm going to have to remember, like every time now I have Zoom, I am dressing appropriately because you never know. <laughs> you look great. I don't know what you're talking about. It's not like you're doing jammies or anything. You look like <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Sometimes I literally like wear my pajamas and do these interviews and I'm like, well, they're sweatpants. So no does, you know. Like, exactly. Like I'm start- now that's the problem is that my sleepwear has become so similar to my what? daywear. That it's- <laughs> exactly. Oh, I don't know if it's day or night. Anyway. Exactly. <laughs> so all to say, I can't see your full ensemble, but you know, <laughs> from this angle, you look great. <laughs> well, thank you. It's yoga. I'm about to do yoga. It's yoga clothes. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> well, thank right. you. Thank you so thank much. You. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much to firstbook.org for sponsoring this Labor Day Book Blast. Please consider giving to firstbook.org to help their network of 475,000 educators serving children in need. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.